the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Back after a two-week hiatus, uh, which was not intentional, we actually intended to be back last week, but we lost our recording, which really kind of stunk because it was a really good podcast. <laughs> but the person that we recorded with is back, and we're going to try it again, and that is David Craddock. Is it Craddock or Craddock? It's Craddock. Craddock, yes, I got it right. And he is the author of Stay a While and Listen, which is the history of Blizzard and also Blizzard North, and Dungeon Hacks, which he released, I believe, a couple months ago, and you can find the review of that on US Gamer. We're going to talk about both those books, but the reason I have David on the show, aside from the fact that he wrote a really excellent book about roguelikes, is that I just posted a cover story that I've been working on for a while, which is an oral history of Diablo 2, which you should definitely go and read. It's a really, if if I do say so myself, a really interesting read. (laughs) It is. It is. You did a great job with that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And it really, it covers the entirety of Diablo 2's development process from pretty much the moment after Diablo 1 came out all the way through launch and the Lords of the Destruction expansion and the patch 1.1 and it was put together over the course of a a few really intense and extremely lengthy interviews with David Brevik, Max Schaefer and Eric Schaefer and it was and I, I really credit those guys for just kind of reaching back in their memories to just like really go in depth uh, for me, and I sincerely appreciate it. Uh, David, you wrote, you, you've kind of covered the same territory, but you were covering, I believe, the entirety of Blizzard in your book, Stay a While and Listen? Right. Stay a While and Listen started as one book that my wife informed me would end up being about as tall and wide as one of our bookcases, unless I segmented it into three parts, which kind of made sense. Uh, Because if you look at Blizzard's history, the Diablo games are actually kind of emblematic of the three eras of Blizzard. There's Diablo 1, which includes, of course, Warcraft and Warcraft 2. They were designed uh, and developed just a couple years before Diablo. And that was kind of the the Wild Wild West era where, you know, guys were just kind of hanging out, kicking it, uh, making games... Uh, doing all sorts of maybe illicit things in the office at the time, <laughs> you know, because yeah, because there were no, there was no sheriff, you know, and right. then uh, Diablo two, which uh, stay well and listen ones, stay well and listen ones ending, uh, goes into the release where it's it's like midnight on December twenty seventh. Uh, they have the the gold master that they uh, put in the hands of Kenny Williams, the office manager there, and a childhood friend of Max and Eric Schaefer's. And he flew down south to California to deliver it to, to Blizzard Entertainment. And that scene is actually where Stay Well and Listen Book 2, which is not quite done yet. It'll be out next summer. That's where it opens. And um, so that's kind of, you know, as you found in your article, that's where Blizzard North and Blizzard Entertainment were both growing, but growing in very different ways. Uh, Dave, Max, and Eric, we the first to tell you that they weren't 
probably the best managers because they never really set out to be. They didn't want to run companies. They wanted to make games with friends. Uh, and so that was, you know, that's kind of an interesting period. And then Stay Wildness in Book 3, which will be done someday maybe, goes into the post-Blizzard North years uh, and the making of Diablo 3, which is, you know, which happened when, when Blizzard Entertainment was, you know, coming right off of World of Warcraft, just flush with more cash than anyone could ever spend in a lifetime. And that had a, a lot of interesting effects on the development process of Diablo 3. Yeah, the difference between Diablo 1 and Diablo 2 was uh, Diablo 1, they had, what, like 14 or 15 people on 15. staff. Yeah. And they were super close-knit. Mm-hmm. And they were, they would hang out and they'd play, what, NHL 94? <laughs> that was a popular one. Yeah, That was definitely a popular one. They'd play whatever games in the office. They just hung out a lot. And then with Diablo 2, they really ramped up a ton. They brought in a ton of new people. I mean, the the old guard were still there, but they ramped up to something on the order of like 45 to 50 people, and they might have had 60 by the time that they left for flagship. So, right, they which, it was like tripled in size. Yeah, which you know kind of comes with its own set of problems because what do you do with 60 people? who are all working on the same game, and that game is shipped, and now they're supposed to do what exactly? So that's kind of when Blizzard North started to really uh, kind of drift aimlessly and, and led to um, the rather sudden departures of uh, Dave, Max, and Eric in summer of 2003. Yeah, I was kind of blown away by just... Like, Eric and Max were very candid about the learning curve, I suppose you could call it, of managing that larger team. And they admit even now that they they feel like they're still not very good at it. Uh, right. David, David Brevik's over at Gazillion now, and he's working on Marvel Heroes. And in fact, I recorded an interview with him uh, earlier this year when Avengers 2 came out. Mm-hmm. And we talked some about Diablo 2, so you should go listen to that podcast because he's a really interesting person to discuss RPGs with. Uh, But they talk a little bit about the conflicts between the old guard and the new guard, uh, talking about like the royalties coming in from Starcraft and that sort of thing, and how they were like, we didn't really handle that that well. (laughs) Right, because that was, um, you know, there there were so many interesting interesting, uh, variables in play there. I mean, you had... Uh, the old guard, which is some of them would refer to themselves by that, but that was also very much a, a political um, title. And uh, they they had a culture of you know this is this is work, but we're all friends here, and, and we want to kind of we want to tell the new people how we do things, which is kind of you know Dave leads the charge, and once Dave is ready to to charge, then we all line up behind him. But uh, you know you had a lot of new people who had experience uh, making games for other companies. And that was a new thing because when Blizzard North was founded as, as Condor in 1993, uh, Dave, Max, and Eric, of course, were the first, they were the co-founders as well as their, you know, first three employees. And um, they were the only ones who had ever shipped a game. And they had only shipped, Max and Eric had only shipped one game. Dave, as the programmer, had worked on several by that point. So most of the people they hired had never made a game before. So they were, they were really very kind of, caught up in 
and entranced by the kind of magical, we're all friends, we're all learning this together. And then all of a sudden comes this flood of new people who have made games and have their own ideas about how to make games and their own way of making games. And it just introduced a lot of uh, unrest in in the um, the hierarchy because there was no hierarchy before. It was Dave, Max, and Eric, and then everybody else. And, and uh, you had people suddenly jockeying for position, which is not to say that the new guard was bad. They were definitely not. There were a lot of guys who, you know, guys like Phil Shank, guys like Tyler Thompson, David Glenn, uh, Michael Dashow, who just really jumped in there and took the reins and created some cool stuff. And that was very much part of Blizzard North's culture. Just do cool stuff and get into loud shouting matches over whether it sucks or not. And if you can shout down the other person with merit, of course, then you win. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was just a very, very interesting time during Diablo 2. And unfortunately for them, in both Diablo 1 and Diablo 2, they're maybe their inexperience, I suppose you could say, resulted in them basically cycling down into just a year of hellish crunch. Yeah. Where, is, uh... in both cases, both Diablo 1 and Diablo 2. Right, right. Because, you know, working on Diablo 1, everyone at Condor only had experience writing console games and handheld games. And those are very interesting games to develop because before... Before the advent of online in the living room, uh, consoles were very much closed boxes. Your, your cartridge games could be bug-ridden disasters, but as long as they booted up and worked, uh, they were fine. And, and then, you know, when you develop for something like the Super Nintendo, uh, it's not like you and I have this, each have a Super Nintendo, but it has a different graphics card. You only have to learn how to program for it one way. But then working on a PC game where everyone has different hardware and they, those guys at Condor had no idea how to make uh, online, internet-enabled multiplayer games. So, you know, a few guys, the, the lead engineers from uh, Blizzard Entertainment, uh, a.k.a. Blizzard South, flew up to Redwood City for several months and helped them write the multiplayer architecture. And it was just, it was this huge, it was this huge learning curve. And, and, and you know, Dave Max and Eric never really wanted a structure. That would have helped, and that was definitely... The goal at Blizzard Entertainment was to become an empire, not in a bad Star Wars, Darth Vader and the Emperor sort of way, but we want to run a business, we want to be, you know, profitable and organized and, and make games that are fun, but, you know, have some sort of, of structure for the process. Whereas Dave, Max, and Eric willing were like, eh, let's just let's just keep doing what we're doing because it, it's fun. And that is great with fifteen people, but not forty five plus. <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of conflict between Blizzard North and Blizzard South. Uh, I was, I couldn't believe that they didn't have a story in mind when they were just making this game. They were like, uh, and then you go here, I guess. Uh, now you're in the desert, uh, and you're, you're chasing this guy from Diablo 1 who stuck the gem in his head and became Diablo. Okay, well, sure. But then, like, Blizzard's just showing up with these cinematics that are like dramatically fleshing out the story and uh, creating these characters. And I was just like, and they were every bit as surprised as the fans when they were coming in. They're like, Oh, okay. I, I guess we have these, uh, this stuff now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they told you the story of 
Uh, sometime in the last three or four months of Diablo's development, they got a CD in the mail that showed the ending to the game where yeah. your hero just kind of impales him or herself with the gemstone, and they're like, oh, that's happening, I guess. But they didn't really care because Dave, Max, and Eric uh, are not and never really have been story guys within the context of video games. So one, the, the, uh, the first chapter of Stay Well and Listen Book 1 follows Dave Brevik through his formative years and the discovery of programming and, and making games. The second chapter focuses on Max and Eric, and one of their favorite things to do was design Dungeons & Dragons campaigns that were pure dungeon crawling. Like Max, he has some quote in there that says, like, we really just wanted to get in there and hit skeletons. We didn't really care why we were doing it. We just wanted to get to the hitting. And that's really what Diablo was all about. So even in, it, it, depending on who you talk to, Blizzard Entertainment's um, decision to just kind of do what they wanted to do with the cinematics uh, upset some people, but left others completely unruffled. Dave, Max, and Eric ultimately didn't really care what they did with the story because it wouldn't affect their game. Um, there were some members of Diablo 2's uh, developer development team who, who actually did kind of take umbrage with that because they wanted to have more of a say in the story. Um, and then, you know, that's another source of conflict. In the old culture, it was whatever Dave wants and then whatever Max and Eric want are fine. And in this new this new regime, you had people who, again, um, because they, they had their own experience, they had their own ideas, were like, well, maybe I could be in charge of this instead of just, you know, these three guys making all the calls. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of when cracks started to, to show a little bit in the company. I really wanted to, I really wanted Chris Metzen to comment on this whole thing, because my understanding is that he was the writer for Blizzard South on the project, but unfortunately he was busy and not able to participate. But just, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing to me, <clears throat> this notion that essentially two different studios, because... I mean, they worked under the same under umbrella, but there were two different studios with different cultures who were working in different parts of California. Like, people who don't live in California kind of have to understand that San, Fran like San Francisco, where Blizzard North was, and L.A. might as well be different states. Like, oh, they're yeah. so far away from each other and so distinct. Yes. Um, so there was a, a real separation going on here. Oh, very much. There was definitely a cultural line in the sand. And I, I don't know that you'll ever get Chris Metzen to comment on Diablo and Diablo 2 because I know that a lot of stuff that happened during that time really upset him. Mm. Uh, Diablo is his favorite Blizzard property. And if he couldn't be the guy at the head, then he didn't want a lot to do with it. And that's uh, something I get more into and stay well and listen book to. Well, that sounds really interesting then. Uh, definitely a reason to check it out. Uh, just, if you look back at Blizzard North circa 1996 19, through 1999, 2000, it was just a different time for video games, right? And, and mm -hmm. I, I talked to David a little bit about this, um, and his comments I don't think made it into the the article, but he was like, yeah, you know, it was a totally different time to make games. Like, we didn't really have the tool sets. Um, and you called it kind of a wild, wild west period. And really, that was maybe the tail end of 
the original Wild West period uh, of the 70s and 80s when you had, what was it, the can a video game make you cry kind of era from EA where you had all of these... Uh, um, video like, game auteurs. Auteurs, yes, these brilliant creative minds coming in um, and kind of doing their own thing to where it was kind of consolidated to more of an assembly line process and then now you have like the distinct line between AAA development and uh, more indie development but it, the, the mid 90s with Blizzard North was really kind of the the end of that original 1980s kind of period of PC development do you kind of agree? Oh I definitely agree um, I can't remember if this made it into your article or not but one issue one point of contention that didn't really exist at all during the development of Diablo 1, but played a big part in uh, Diablo 2, was titles. Who was going to be listed as what in the manual? Again, during Diablo 1, uh, both Blizzards had a policy where if, if you open the, any of the, uh, the instruction manuals for Warcraft 1 or 2 or Diablo uh, or Starcraft, I guess these days you could just go to Moby Games, um, you will see the first thing you'll see is designed by and then the name of the company. And what that was trying to say was, you know, we all did this together. Everybody at both blizzards was a designer. Everybody had their feet at the table, so to speak. But in Diablo 2, near the near the end, Dave Max and Eric sat down and just among themselves talked about, all right, well, who should who should be designated as lead artist, lead programmer, lead this and that? And it was a meritocracy. They, you know, they looked at uh, Rick Seiss, who had been around, who was actually co-employee number one, along with Michio Akamura. They like to good-naturedly argue about who was the real first hire. Um, Rick Seiss was the obvious choice for a lead programmer because he had done an immense amount of work. He was one who, who did crunch for 18 months. And in my interviews with him, he said he kind of still feel burns out today. Like, he can't think about... A, a lot of the guys who worked on that game cannot look at Diablo 2 and have not played it since. It, it took that much of a toll on them. Um, but he was the obvious choice for lead programmer. But when they sent out a company-wide email, a lot of debate sprung up. Like, well, so-and-so may have done this, but what about this thing that I did? And that was something that, you know, Dave Max and Eric weren't really prepared to deal with because before what they said was law, not in a, you know, dictatorial sort of way, but in a, this is kind of always how we've done things. And, you know, there was um, a lot of the old guard really took issue with that because before it didn't matter what the manual listed you as. You, We all did it together. It was a an all for one and one for all. But that was very much, um, that was changing, especially at the tail end of Diablo 2. You also have to factor in, the, the reality that after 18 months of crunching, who's going to be in a good mood and up for a civil debate about that sort of thing? Nobody. No. Nope. And the amount of crunch that they did was just truly ridiculous, where they were basically working 18-hour days, seven days a week for like a solid year. Yep. I mean, I, I can't fathom putting myself in that kind of position. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, I think we touched on this last week in the in the in the episode that never was and never will be um where you know depending on the position you crunched earlier or later and you started or you finished sooner or later but even for example the artists the artists are always the first one 
done crunching because, you know, there comes a point where like, okay, you don't need any more artwork, but we still have bugs. We still have logic to write. We still have AI. We still have pathfinding, all this stuff. And so the programmers are really the ones who are in there from the moment you write your first hello world statement until you ship it out the door. And even then, even back then, um, battle.net was a, was a, a stack of dimes when in Diablo two launched you know, on, uh, June 29th of 2000. And, you know, they were still at Blizzard North, um, pulling in, putting in overtime. So were the, the guys at, at Blizzard, uh, entertainment. Um, in fact, I think at that point, Patrick Wyatt, who was the first employee hired at Blizzard Entertainment, was the only guy in charge of Battle.net. So imagine having to juggle support for StarCraft, Brood War, and Diablo 2, this brand new game, uh, that was at the time, I think, the most pre-ordered game ever. This was, uh, The Sims might have eclipsed it, I don't remember. But, um, you know, it was just, there was just so much to do, so much to handle, so on, on a scale that was completely... Unlike any any game that either Blizzard had ever released before, because it seemed like you know they had this policy where their games stayed on shelves longer because you didn't just play Diablo or Warcraft or Starcraft as a Blizzard fan; you played all their games. So when a new Blizzard game came out, that got everybody excited to play the titles in their back catalog, and and so you you were constantly juggling support for everything, even if it was already a couple years old by that point. It worked too, because I was a huge Blizzard fan girl in oh, the, yeah. in the mid '90s. Yep, absolutely. I'm right there with you. I mean, when you bought a Blizzard game, everything about that package just oozed quality, right? Yeah. It down to the fact that the manual was always it, it was almost like a mini RPG source book, mm-hmm. filled with like lots of original artwork and like this super in-depth story and. Like, I could sit there and just read there. And, and it was big, too. Like, up until Warcraft 3, like, they had th- these big manuals that were the kind of thing that you actually kind of wanted to put on your shelf. Yeah. yeah it was a great time. It, it, to be yeah, a fan. it really, really was. I especially remember, um, well, just to kind of elaborate on what you said, it, it was interesting because I went to a lot of... It, I actually met the guys at Blizzard North one week before Diablo 2 shipped. Wow, really? Uh, yeah, my uh, my uncle Brad Mason ran his own IT company um, back then called Apollo, and he could they speak coherent sentences? What's that? Could they speak coherent sentences? Barely, because here here's what happened. <laughs> uh, my uncle Brad uh, did some freelance for them. He come he came in and set up a lot of their their networking support. And he was friends with a lot of those guys. So one day, he took me to Blizzard North. I got to meet Dave Brevik, who was uh, slumped over his computer. Um, I got to meet Max, who's always, he's just, he's such a, a gregarious and, and friendly guy. He had a big smile, shook my hand. And then uh, Rick Sice and a bunch of the other guys led me down the corridor into their game room. They picture this, this huge room with folding tables up against one wall. And uh, CRTs and every game console from Atari all the way to an import PS2 because this was two months before that console hit the States. And I got to play around, and they were sitting there. As I recall, uh, at one point they stood around trashing StarCraft 64 because why would you put an RTS on a console <laughs> kind of argument. Um, <laughs> I got to go one of their one of their offices. Uh, John Morin um, 
loaded up the Act One town, the rogue encampment, and uh, entered some programmer command and spawned Diablo in town. I got to watch Diablo run around and kill all the NPCs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just this really cool meeting, but they, they were everyone was so. They were excited because it was kind of like Christmas Eve. It was almost like they were parents. Like they had been the ones up wrapping the presents. And, uh, you know, Santa was due in a number of hours and they wanted to go to bed. They were so tired, but they were also excited, too. So it, it was just a really interesting time. And then uh, years later, when I started my inter the interviews for the book, I was like, I was the kid who was just, you know, probably grinning like an idiot hanging out with the people who made Diablo and Diablo 2 at the time. So that's kind of funny. When it comes to the actual design of Diablo 2, it's funny because the original Diablo was regarded as kind of a flashpoint in RPG history because originally Diablo was going to be turn-based mm -hmm. um, and it was based heavily on roguelikes, which we'll get back, we'll get to in kind of the back half of the episode. Um, but just by being put into real time and being made into this hack and slash affair. Like a lot of RPG fans took umbrage at that, said, ah, it's not an RPG. How dare you? Mm -hmm. But Diablo two invented, or I, I should, I should say like kind of codified a lot of what we know as RPG elements or concepts today. Right. Not the least being skill trees. Mm -hmm. I, I found it fascinating that David Brevik came up with the idea in the shower after playing Civilization II for a while and going, hey, we should put this in our game. And it was, it was originally kind of a strategy game thing. And now, and now, like, if you see a skill tree in, like, Call of Duty or something, people are like, oh, that's an RPG element. <laughs> right. That's all Diablo 2 right there. Yeah, you know, kind of the, the victors write the history books where, you know, if, you're, if your game was more popular, people tend to, to point to it as the progenitor of, of this or that feature. The same way that, you know, Resident Evil was not the first survival horror game, but it was certainly the, the biggest for its time. And I know that uh, one thing Dave told me, I can't remember if this was in your article, but he said uh, first he took the skill trees from Civilization and Master... Masters of Orion, literally, where they were going to be like multiple sp screen spanning 75 branch beasts <laughs> that they eventually whittled down to uh, three skill trees per character, 10 skills per tree. And uh, the funny thing is they said that um, Eric talked about this. There was no particular methodology for deciding whether a skill fell at the bottom or the top. They were just like, yeah, whatever's cool. I don't know. So that's kind of... <laughs> That's kind of how the skill trees came together. And that that's really, if you look at Diablo 3, you can see how Blizzard Entertainment's careful approach actually kind of disrupted the design process for that game. Diablo 2 was not balanced for PvP. Nobody at Blizzard North really cared about PvP, except for Cheeming Bowie, who actually made a habit of killing Bill Roper, but never told him. Um... They just it was it was supposed to be fun for a single player first and foremost, so there was no thought given to balance in multiplayer. Could the sorceresses? Um, oh, I can't remember her skill. The the oh, frozen orb, which uh, you know this ball of ice that split into uh, icicles, ice shards. Uh, could that just shred through a necromancer's clay golem? Yeah, maybe we'll figure it out. We'll just play test and we'll adjust from there. But one of the reasons the the much 
uh, touted PvP feature of Diablo 3 never came to fruition as it was promised, and I, I was able to to predict this just from knowing so much about you know the development of the first two games was Blizzard Entertainment was trying too hard to develop the skills for PvP when that's really not the main focus of the game. You have to make sure the skills are fun to use against monsters first, because that's what you're going to spend most of your time killing. And, you know, they, they eventually got so bogged down in trying to balance every single skill and rune that, guess what? It never materialized. And, uh, you know, that was kind of someone that something that anyone who had paid attention to the development of the first two games could kind of see coming from a mile away. And not, not to, to ride Blizzard Entertainment about that, it's just that it, it speaks to the very different design processes put into play by Blizzard Entertainment and Blizzard North. I didn't. I don't have the article in front of me right now, but I, I remember that when they were talking about building the classes, they talked about just all the classes had their individual kind of um, champions, I suppose you could say. And it was just like, well, this this ability makes sense for this character, so uh, toss it in. And and it's kind of like a forum, right, where it was like. People are going. Oh, my! The, this class—it doesn't feel strong enough. It really <laughs> needs to be stronger. Right, which was which was such an important part of Blizzard North's culture. Dave, Max, and Eric—I um, I think they would agree that the one thing they did better than anything else was foster a culture of ownership. They hired people who they believed would go in and and lay claim to things in a good way. You, they wanted people who w- didn't want to just clock in and clock out after eight-hour days. They wanted people who would really go in there and get passionate about what they were making and make it the best they could be because it had their name on it, damn it, and they wanted to be proud of it. And so, you know, when you were assigned a character, like Mike Dashout worked on The Sorceress, um, he was encouraged to suggest ideas for skills. Uh, everyone who... If you built one of the hero classes, you were in charge of rendering uh, every single individual piece of armor that made up the light, medium, and heavy looks. And, of course, that was a big thing for Diablo 2, right? In, in Diablo 1, you only had the three armor styles. No matter what piece of gear you equipped, it was it, you only saw a light, medium, or heavy uh, graphic for your character. Uh, but in Diablo 2, each weapon had an individual... Uh, sprite, each piece of armor, each you know, body armor, helm, boots. I mean, it was all accounted for. And that was, that was uh, a huge undertaking for back then. Because, you know, 2D games having to render all that out, it was, that definitely added a lot of time to the crunch process. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get a lot of information on kind of the battle over hardcore mode. Um, it was one of one of many battles that they had was Blizzard South over things like body parts. Mm-hmm. But you talk a little bit about it in Stay a While and Listen Book 2, or at least you allude to it um, in Dungeon Hacks. And so could you talk a little bit about it? Sure. That That's a battle that dated back to the early phases of Diablo 1. Um, David Brevik and Alan Adham were the respective heads of the two studios. David Brevik said, Diablo will have hardcore. Alan Adham said, Haha, no, it won't. Dave Brevik said, oh, but you're wrong, because I'm designing Diablo 
as a spiritual successor to roguelikes. And in roguelikes, there's no resurrection. There's no second chance, no continues. Uh, when you die, that's it. And eventually, Dave realized, you know, that is definitely a very punitive sort of game mode, so we'll table it. But that's all he ever considered doing, just tabling it. He was always going to circle back. In Diablo 2, the argument came up again, but Blizzard North decided to just stick it in, but they came up with a compromise. They said, all right, for your first time out, if you haven't beaten the game, if the game searches your hard drive and finds that you have not finished, you can't go hardcore. But once you've beaten the game once, then you can create hardcore characters. So it's kind of like, you know, they make it fair. You can't create a hardcore character until the point where you've been through the game at least once. You kind of know more or less of what monsters and quests and bosses to expect in each act and how you should gear up accordingly. And um, that that is really how Blizzard... North tended to do things. They just kind of stuck it in and and uh, play tested it to death to see if it worked. And you know, contrast that with Blizzard Entertainment, which they did plenty of that. They're very creative folks down there. But they also, during the development of Diablo, they came up with the concept of the strike team. Now, this was really because they felt that they needed to keep Condor and Blizzard North in line. They very much viewed the relationship between Blizzard Entertainment and Blizzard North is parent-child. The parent knows best, and so the parent, you know, gets the final say. And so they, the, the strike team was made up of, of individuals like Alan Adham, like Bill Roper, who was a producer on Diablo for a time, uh, like Pat Wyatt, who was uh, the, the vice president of R&D, I believe, at the time. And it was their job to weigh in, and really <laughs> it was kind of like their gladiatorial team who would go to the mat with Blizzard North over any creative decision. The strike team and Blizzard North's principals were the ones who went 15 rounds over over hardcore slash permadeath and, uh, you know, in both games. But Blizzard North's style just kind of won out because, again, it was about compromise. Both sides had merit. It's very punishing, and Blizzard North makes... Alan Adham described it as Blizzard North making games kind of for, for donuts, but not the center of the donut, the real small part that nobody can even touch. The full donut is the casual base. That's that's their target. But, you know, Blizzard North also had a good point, too. Hardcore mode is really fun because you get really invested with your character. You, you never want to do anything silly like just charge into a room and wake up all the monsters. You want to be cautious because you only get one chance. And so hardcore coming into play after you've beaten the game was this perfect middle-of-the-road solution that that really one reason Diablo and Diablo 2 were so successful is because you had both companies full of people who were so passionate about these products. And you contrast that with, with Diablo 3, which was a good game during its first year, year and a half, but not a great game, perhaps because there was no one to really give them a push and pull argument and say, well, why don't you think about it this other way? So Diablo is famously based upon roguelikes, as you already said, Mm -hmm. because David Brevik was a gigantic roguelike fan, and Mm -hmm. he wanted to, what, do a visual version of Rogue when he was making the games? Yeah, yeah. um, When his family moved to California, when he was, uh, I think, entering his sophomore year of high school, they lived at the foot of Mount Diablo. So he learned the name, and then in Spanish class he learned Diablo means devil, 
And he kind of filed that away, thinking, oh, that's a cool name for a game. But he didn't know what type of game it was going to be. And in college, he learned about roguelikes and was like, you know, I think I'll make a game called Diablo, which is a roguelike in style, and based on Moria, where the object is you start in a town and then go down, down, down these floors of a dungeon and and eventually fight the the kind of devil-looking Balrog. You wrote a book called, as I already mentioned, Dungeon Hacks, mm-hmm. uh, which is, it's it's not a comprehensive history because it doesn't cover everything, but it, it covers a lot of the really important pillars of the roguelike genre, right. uh, including, what is it, Angband, uh, Moria, NetHack, Rogue, um, and also Beneath Apple Manor. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that interviewing uh, Max and David and Eric kind of transported me to a very different period of game development. Your book really kind of brought me back to, uh, I suppose, like the primordial ooze, I guess you might call it, of games where you just paint this wonderful picture of of these rooms with these mainframes and and people, yeah, they're they're doing they're having to like check out time on them to be and people staying late afterward to play, to be able to play these these very early early games. Like I think you alluded, you mentioned a Star Trek strategy game where like the information was being printed out. Yes, yes, it was uh, also a text based game where you played on an eight by eight grid and had to hunt down other ships and. Um, if you if you were using a teletype terminal connected to a mainframe, and most uh, institutions were back then, you uh, made a move and then waited for the updated game screen, quote-unquote, to be printed out on a piece of paper, and then you studied it and entered your next move and waited for the next printout. A lot of trees gave their lives for games like Star Trek. <laughs> I, I think what jumped out at me was that people were playing games like Colossal Cave Adventure early on. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Colossal Cave Adventure was it could be solved. Yes. And so in the quest for a game that could be replayed in into infinity, in theory, people went out and that's how we got roguelikes. So that's how we got Rogue and Beneath Apple Manor. And wasn't it the case that both, beneath, both the creators of Beneath Apple Manor and the creators of Rogue basically played the same games leading up to what they were going to wait leading up to the games that they created. It definitely was. Um, that was the case. That's kind of the, the message that I drive home over the first four chapters of the books. It's, I kind of used the metaphor of, uh, convergent biology where you'll have two different types of creature who grow up apart from one another, but in similar circumstances, just like, you know, both birds and pterodactyls have have wings, and so do bats, and then they all evolved wings because they were uh, influenced by similar circumstances. And so, you know, Don Worth, who created Apple Manor's, Manor, uh, was kind of there at the forefront of computers. He was working in a lab with mainframes and learning how to program them and playing D&D with his buddies at night, uh, so was Michael Toy, so was Glenn Wickman, so was Ken Arnold, so was Jeff McCord, who made uh, sort of Fargo. And so it was just a very interesting 
it was a very interesting time because if you think about it today, today it's so easy to share ideas because you can jump on one of hundreds or thousands of forums and, and talk with other people. And you might never put a, a name to the face, a screen name to the face, but you can still talk to them. But these guys, these guys have still never met, to my knowledge. They've never crossed paths, but they were really? all... Yeah, but they were all such big, big geeks in, in the nicest possible way for things like uh, pen and paper role-playing games, uh, the J.R.R. Tolkien's work, and computers. And so those, you know, back when computers were new and there weren't a lot of games, uh, these D&D players, their first inclination was, say, wouldn't it be great to make a D&D game for the computer? Because then I and my players wouldn't have to fuss with rolling dice and calculating this and that. The computer could handle the math. And so that was kind of the the natural next step. And, and Michael Toy, Michael Toy loved adventure games like Colossal Cave Adventure. But as you mentioned, he the, the, for him the fatal flaw was that once you solved it, the puzzles and story never changed. So there was no reason to replay it. And he tried his hand at making adventure games, but that just exacerbated his problem because as the author, he knew the outcome of the story and the solutions to the puzzles from the get-go. So what he wanted to do was create a fantasy role-playing game that was different every time so that even he, as the author, could be surprised. And Jeff McCord actually had the same sort of idea. It, it's interesting from his perspective because um, I believe, I, now this is all kind of getting hazy, but I believe sort of Fargoal was, if it wasn't out before Rogue, it was actually a bigger seller than Rogue because when when uh, Michael Toy uh, partnered with um, Ken Arnold and John Lane and then later Glenn Wickman uh, with whom he created Rogue originally uh, to bring Rogue to home computers, um, they didn't really stray too far from Rogue's graphical pedigree, which is to say it was still just they were just using text characters, but sort of Fargo actually did a little bit better commercially because it used proper like tile-based graphics and sprites. So, you know, um, I interviewed one of the old uh, managers at Epics that sold um, both sort of Fargo and Rogue, and he said that one of the problems we had in advertising Rogue is back then distributors would browse product catalogs and really just order shipments of games based on, you know, kind of judging a book by its cover, so to speak. They wanted to see pretty screenshots that they uh, felt would entice consumers to buy. Rogue was not a pretty game, um, just uh, objectively speaking, and so they had a lot of trouble marketing it, whereas sort of far goal, especially that was that was a game on the Commodore, PET, and 64 computers um, that had uh, pretty graphics for the time and made interesting use of sound. You know, sound cards were beginning to be a thing back in the mid-80s and early 90s as well. One of the kind of the major points that you make in your book is that uh, the way these games spread was that people would play them in a computer lab or something, and then they would make a copy and bring it back to their own university or something. And in that way, it was really a really very early example of a game going viral, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really was, and it was it was such a it was kind of an exclusive crowd. Uh, nobody really thought about it back then, but you know this was the the early stages of ARPANET, which was a, a military and scientific network that was designed 
to share information between, you know, very straight-laced, serious organizations like the military, like uh, NASA. And so as universities kind of came online with ARPANET, students were, were drawn to it because the idea that they were able to sit down at a terminal uh, that was connected to a mainframe somewhere that was itself connected to this network and not a very big one. We're talking in the numbers of dozens and hundreds instead of millions. Uh, and, you know, from your terminal, you could kind of go through the folders of, you know, if you were at UC Santa Cruz, you could see what was going on at, at UC Berkeley, what kind of programs they had. And you usually ran the programs right from your terminal, which was stored on uh, another mainframe somewhere. And you could look at the code. Uh, sometimes, depending, you know, the, the guys who made Rogue kind of wanted to keep the source code to themselves because they, you know, entertained dreams of, of selling it and making it a commercial product. But it was just really most of the people who, who played roguelikes early on were people who were either college students or in some sort of uh, professional capacity because it's not like, you know, this wasn't the mid-90s when, you know, your mailbox just overflowed with AOL disks. Uh, not just anyone was able to get online and download games. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, and because these were the people who were working with computers from their very earliest days, it's no surprise that they were also the first people to get online and be using stuff like Usenet, which is another really common thread throughout your throughout your book, is kind of the collaborative nature uh, especially when it came to making a game like NetHack. You had, you had people, what was it, collaborating online from, what, the mid-'80s? Yeah, and just sending emails. And, again, these were all, com these were all people who uh, most of them didn't work from home uh, because, um, you know, not just any home computer could get on to anything remotely resembling the Internet unless we're talking BBSs. But, they, you know, they mostly <laughs> uh, signed on from work. And had to be kind of discreet because they, you know, too much coding, too much running the game would steal time cycles and slow down the the mainframe uh, onto which every other terminal was connected. The time cycles thing just yeah, I, I can't even that. wrap my mind around that. Right? I know it's 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 a real brain bender to think about the fact that um, uh, I'm working on another book right now about Apple II games that'll be out in hardcover right around the time stay while well, unless in two ships uh, next summer and also right around the time my uh, next young adult novel will be out i don't think i'm going to be sleeping for a while is my point but the second point is that uh you know they actually the the co-creators of zork had to kind of batten down the hatches and and bar off the game because the you know <laughs> the university mainframe was being uh drained of time cycles from people from all over the country logging on to play Zork. So they said, all right, well, you can only play it between the hours of like 5 p.m. and midnight just because we actually have to let some people get some work done <laughs> eventually. You go out of your way to kind of figure out whether or not Beneath Apple Manor is the first RPG. Mm -hmm. not, not just the first RPG that's distributed because I, I believe it's Richard Garriott who claims that a Calabeth was the first commercially distributed RPG. Mm -hmm. um, why, why, why is that? I I was very interested in in seeing if I could kind of follow that yarn 
to its its terminus, I guess. Um, like because we all think about you know you talk about our, our, for the almost an hour now we've been talking about early RPGs and early this and early that and I think it's a natural extension of that discussion to say you know what was the first and and that's impossible to pin down because um, just like that Star Trek game this, this Star Trek game existed almost exclusively on mainframes for many many years until someone got it in their head to port it to you know the the growing number of PCs that were becoming available like the you know the Apple II the TRS-80 the the Commodore PET and so forth um, but even then it, it's so hard to find to to pin down the first of anything because well you know maybe maybe so you know game x went on sale before game y or maybe game y was never meant for sale but it existed and someone played it and happened to keep notes that eventually made it onto wikipedia and so i it was just um what i really like to do with my books is i like to pepper them with footnotes that kind of position the books as not just books but they're almost i'm i think of it as kind of writing a museum wing, or when you tour this wing, you get to learn as much as possible, presented in what I hope is an entertaining fashion. And so I just thought it might be fun to invite anyone who wanted to come with me down the rabbit hole to, to kind of see where it went. One of the common kind of threads on this on this podcast, and it's my fault because I started with it, which might have been a mistake, but <laughs> this whole notion of what is an RPG, which ultimately might not matter because I mean once upon a time like RPGs were a very distinct thing from say you know a sports game or Pong uh, they were the games with the story and the quest and the adventure and that's what helped them stand apart from everything else but now you have a game like Metal Gear Solid 5 which is extremely story based and gives you a good deal of control over how you, what your character is wielding and how they go into battle and everything. So a lot of those lines have blurred, but at the same time I I feel like it's it's still worthwhile to get down to what kind of what is kind of the foundation of this genre because it helps to understand the genre better. So I I I'm kind of wondering what's your stance on what makes an RPG? This was uh, one of the, my favorite aspects of our conversation from last week and in the episode that only you and I will ever get to. to <laughs> the, secret, the secret the, episode. The top secret super yeah alpha turbo hyper fighting deluxe episode that will never be released. Um, and I thought a lot about it because, you know, I think that an RPG, uh, of course there are a lot of people who, who hold to really uh, airtight can't be persuaded definitions. They need they need stats. They need uh, lots of story. They need maybe a turn-based system. It's kind of like you know Diablo was very interesting when it came out because most computer RPGs up to that point had been uh, really digital adaptations of Dungeons and Dragons that started out as pure dungeon crawls but gradually added uh, more stats and more uh, story elements. You know, if you if you look at the time frame to kind of Diablo and Baldur's Gate were two of the big RPGs released around the same time, but they weren't really in competition because they catered to different crowds, and yet they were still both an RPG. And, and why is that? What is an RPG? And I, I think I think it's for me, it's, it's any game where where you not only play a role, but influence 
and and grow a character, develop a character over time, be it through, you know, number crunching and stats or through, you know, the gear that you're wearing and the weapons you wield or be it through the changes that you affect in a world. I think that any anytime you play a role and and make things happen that develop your character and, and tie you to that character and, 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 and let you experience change and growth. I think that's a role-playing game. I think Dark Souls is as valid an RPG as Chrono Trigger, as Diablo, as Baldur's Gate, as uh, Skyrim. I mean, there's, you know, you're playing these roles. But, and, and those are all kind of, they, they hew very close to the standard definition of RPG, but, you know, you look like a game, uh, at a game like Metal Gear Solid Five, even even Grand Theft Auto. I think San Andreas is still my favorite in that series because I had such control over my character. My CJ was this, this ripped guy who ran around without a shirt and had, uh, had dreadlocks and tattoos and sunglasses. Later on, he wore a suit because as he got more money, I saw him as kind of this, this almost godfather type figure. Whereas my brother's CJ uh, ate at Cluck and Bell 12 times an hour or so and was this, this corpulent guy who kind of waddled away from police rather than sprint, sprint, sprinted. I mean, that's an RPG, too. I love you know, that part of Grand Theft Auto 3. Oh, it's so great. I, I, you know, I, I developed my, uh, my bicycling skill until I could outrun trains. I mean, that's great. That's a role-playing <laughs> game right there. That game was insane. Oh, it was insane in the best way. I, I, I think what matters for a lot of people is just what are you looking for in an RPG? I mean, it gets back to when you were talking about how Max Schaefer, when he used to d- design D&D campaigns, he would, what, he would just do the hack and slash, right? He just... It was Eric. Eric was uh, the Eric, architect. Right. And then, and then uh, Max was the one who was eager to, to get to the killing, you know, getting to kill skeletons. The beer and <laughs> chips uh, D&D experience, as yes. a friend of mine called it. And then there are people like, you know, um, uh, like the creators of the Elder Scrolls games, who are created these massive, intricate, crazy worlds with all of these NPCs and all of this like lore and everything, which eventually formed the foundation of the Elder Scrolls games. Because if, if I recall correctly, Elder Scrolls Arena was basically an adaptation of their uh, <laughs> original D&D campaign, surprise, surprise. Right, um, there you go. So there are people who play RPGs because they want a really good story, or at least comparatively speaking with video games they want a really good story and that's what used to draw me to rpgs back in the 90s right because they had these interesting characters and dialogue and and everything and it felt like you were in a world in a way that you simply didn't have with say like mortal Kombat. right um today to be perfectly honest um i play rpgs because i like turn-based combat i like min maxing i like <laughs> manipulating stats or in the case of say NBA 2K it puts me into a role that maybe I would never be able to experience in real life like it lets me pretend that I'm a pro athlete and I'm in a sports movie and I'm playing games and getting better and developing my stats and and now like <laughs> the end of my free my end of my rookie contract is up and Andre Drummond is coming up and trying to convince me to stay with the Detroit Pistons, but no, I'm going to the Knicks, damn it. 
<laughs> that's an RPG to me right there. That's an RPG. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally I totally agree. And and it's interesting how how that story can take so many forms. I mean, you are invested in your avatar story. It, it might not be, you know, uh, you know, playing hard and fast to a certain script or a certain path, um, but you know, it, it, it's your character's growth. And then you look at something like like Diablo. I mean, even Dave Brevik kind of had the same idea. He said one of the the appeals of Diablo is that really the story is communicated clearly on the box. Diablo, devil, bad, go kill him. <laughs> you know, and that, that's all you need to know. And the rest of the story, you you kind of, you take it in through osmosis. You you, you pay attention to the visuals, they're, they're dark and gritty, to the, to the moody soundtrack, to the, you know, eviscerated villager who was, who was the only survivor of the ill-fated party who went down to confront the butcher, um, you know, a lot of those stories weren't told through just standing around listening to dialogue. You just kind of took it in as the player. Well, when you get back to roguelikes, I, I think it's worth pointing out that, I mean, by most measures, I, I think a lot of people would call them an RPG because they're a direct offshoot of Dungeons and Dragons. And um, in every sense of the word, you're playing a role. But those game, the, that genre especially early roguelikes maybe maybe not so much later roguelikes but the early roguelikes really made you kind of imagine your story like the story kind of it like it it never really like was explicitly put down on the page it was just like the, the the crux of the roguelike genre was the stories that you told afterward of how you made it all the way to the balrog and you were able to, what was that story like? You, the, he had them, the ball rung on the other side of the wall or something to that effect? Yeah, he, he this, uh, one of his friends, this was Robert Koniki, who was, uh, who had his friends playtest the game for him, and they were all too willing to oblige. Uh, one of his friends realized that, uh, they, he was fighting the ball rug toe to toe on, on the bottom most level of Moria, and then he ran off, or the, the ball rug ran around the corner to heal. And his friend got it in his head to go in the adjacent room so that he was on the wall uh, opposite the Balrog. So there's a wall in between them. And he, he, just for fun, I guess, cast a fireball and found that the fire <laughs> kind of bled through the wall and chipped away at the Balrog. So he was able to kill the Balrog by effectively using a wall as a shield and just kind of, you know pushing fire through it, which was, you know, that's that's a good story. That's a great story to, to stand around and, and uh, you know, share with your friends. such a video game thing, too. It, it's it very much And then is. there are the people who are like, yeah, I was doing super well, and then I stupidly drank the purple potion. <laughs> <laughs> which was, uh, you know, somewhat by design, a lot of those guys did not want to make uh, ID scrolls, which, of course, you know, later found their way into Diablo from roguelikes plentiful because they wanted experimentation to drive your progress. They wanted you to learn what a potion was by drinking it. And hey, if you died, well, that's a bummer. And, and another kind of fun slash cruel trick that uh, Glenn Wickman told me about was usually on each playthrough, they would switch the roles of the potion. So, you know, the cinnamon potion might have restored your life last time, but uh, it might kill you with one sip this time around. It's, if you look at games today, um, I kind of talked a little bit about how 
we were almost wrapping all the way back to the very beginning of game development where you had people developing games on their own as kind of a hobbyist thing and then they would go quote viral by people literally mailing discs to one another and now Mm. you have people making games on their own and kickstarting them or putting them online and having them become super popular or having mods or whatever um when it comes to roguelikes so it's not surprising to me that roguelikes have suddenly become have suddenly gone from this really niche genre <laughs> to arguably the most important element of a standard indie game at this point right because i mean the reasons for it are pretty obvious right i mean it gives them essentially like they can't create they don't have time to create as much content or or as many assets as your standard AAA developer. So it le- it gives them kind of infinite replayability on a smaller budget, right? Right. But it 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 just makes sense that now that we've gone back to this kind of this hobbyist approach, especially on the indie side, um, that roguelikes would really bubble to the surface and into the popular consciousness. So I'll admit, it's been very strange to see. Yeah, you know, it really has, but it's also, it just kind of makes sense because when you think about it, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, procedural content generation, ensuring that your players will never, ever encounter the exact same level configuration or uh, situation more than once are not only economical from a development standpoint, but, but players love that sort of thing because it gives you more bang from your buck. If if you don't have, you know, a couple hundred dollars to keep up with all the new blockbuster AAA releases that come out every week, you can buy, you know, one 99 cent or $5 or $10 indie game that features procedural content generation and get just hours and hours, maybe even months or years of gameplay out of it. And it's it's definitely, I mean, you look at, of course, Diablo was influenced by roguelikes. FTL was influenced by roguelikes. Um, it's stand, uh, procedural content generation and also permadeath, I think, are probably the two most interesting systems Um that that really kind of uh, started with roguelikes, uh, at least interesting, most interesting to me, and uh, I, I definitely look forward to seeing how they continue to bleed into other genres and cause more players sleepless nights when they've lost their characters forever. <laughs> he had a great he had a great quote, um, and it's actually from Dan Whitehead at Eurogamer, which is our sister site, and he was talking about FTL, and he said. The roguelike, he was referring to FTLs, but he might as well have been talking about roguelikes in general. It's the very definition of a game that is all about the journey rather than the destination. Mm-hmm. And that, that really set, that's what really sets the genre apart, right? It's like these people, like a lot of people who, God, I, I don't want to use this word, but people who maybe approach the medium more casually mm-hmm. uh, will pick up a game and they'll be like, I have played this game to its conclusion and I have done everything that there is to do in it. I have now completed this game. Next game, please. (laughs) Where you have a game like NetHack where people are playing... People very rarely finish. (laughs) It's not often that they finish. (laughs) And But at the same time, they 
have these amazing memories going back to the very beginning and it it's just what really separates games from almost every other medium right because you finish a movie in two hours you binge watch a television show you read a book but i mean there are people who are still playing nethack religiously uh for like 30 years on it's crazy to me yeah, I mean that's that's something that I can empathize with. Uh, growing up, uh, my family was not poor, but my my mom tolerated video games only insofar as my grades stayed at or above a certain level. And because she wasn't exactly gung ho about the video game thing, I didn't get many new games a year. It's just not something she you know was too keen to buy me because I definitely have an obsessive compulsive personality and she you know recognized it a long time before I did so I just kind of got into the position of of wringing every last drop of fun out of games or you know playing them over and over and over again because I knew it would be you know until you know at least Christmas or my birthday with when I would get a couple more and um that the Beating them is usually the first thing I would do, but then I would go back and just kind of set little challenges for myself. Like I'd play, I'd, I'd, I'd role play even Mortal Kombat. I'd say, okay, if I play as a bad guy, I'm going to kill all the good guys and the bad guys because I'm a bad guy. I'm crazy. But if I'm a good guy, I'm not going to kill my allies. Like that was how I changed the game. I was, I was kind of writing my own little story in the game. And, I mean, I think with roguelikes especially, and this is a subject uh, covered in detail in Dungeon Hacks, um, they're not really meant to be beaten. I mean, if you if you finish NetHack, that, that is definitely a huge achievement in your gaming career, as it were. But really, the fun is just in experimenting and exploring and just playing around with the new items that you find and, and seeing how how the game systems have arranged themselves with this spin of the wheel. I think that's the real draw. In your book, you, I mean, your book kind of doubles as in addition to being a history of roguelikes. It's also kind of advocates for them, and especially those classic games like Moria and Rogue. Um, what is it about the genre that really speaks to you? Well, I think the the reason I set out to, to write uh, the story of the kind of seminal roguelike games in Dungeon Hacks rather than a more comprehensive history is that I have uh, become something of a game historian between... Uh, Dungeon Hacks and Stay Well and Listen and various other projects I'm working on. And I, I just find it interesting to kind of trace games and genres back to their roots so that that history isn't lost. And what I really love about the the classic style of roguelike in particular is that it was unadorned. Um, I've never been a graphics guy. I can appreciate uh, beautiful games and unique art styles, but gameplay is what really intrigues me. That's what keeps me coming back to, you know, my favorite games from the 8 and 16-bit days to to games like Diablo, which, are, you know, are certainly long in the tooth now, but still fun because largely of procedural content generation. I just, I really like 
I really enjoy roguelikes because of how the game systems allow me to, to kind of write my own stories each and every time. Well, I strongly recommend that people check out Dungeon Hacks, which is a really, it's a really engaging read, and it really brought me back to a world that, you know, I I find very interesting, but I've never actually been able to experience, which was kind of that, that, that period of gaming in the 70s and the 80s, because I was born in the early 80s. Um, my initial experience with video games was with the NES and moving on into PC gaming in the 90s. <clears throat> so just my perspective is different. And, and David, you, it's the same for you. You were born like a year before me, right? Yeah, 82. Yeah. Yeah, but you do just a phenomenal job putting me into those kind of those universities and making me go, oh, okay, so that was what it was like <laughs> to actually be there checking out time cycles on the university mainframe so that I could play Rogue. <laughs> right. I, I really appreciate that. That compliment means a lot. And, and, and I should mention, I think one reason, if I do say so myself, that I was able to do that so effectively is because um, I don't think Dungeon Hacks or Stay While and Listener or any of these kind of game stories, game history stories that I that I tell are about the games as much as they are the people. What I really want to do is is write these stories in such a way that you can put yourself in the shoes of the pioneers who are who created these these interesting types of games for us to play. And and, and, and you know it, they are stories uh, rather than you know they're fun stories to read. They read like novels rather than you know strategy guides or something. Well, um. So let's see. Dungeon Hacks is already out. Stay a while and listen. Book one is already out. And you can find them around the internet, I imagine, by using the magic that is Google. Yes. Um, and I will also link to both of them so that you can find them in the show notes. And then also, Stay a while and listen. Book two is coming out next summer, right? Right. That's the plan. Yes. That's excellent. So that we can get together and we can talk even more about Diablo 2 and everything that was going on with that because we just can't get enough Diablo on this RPG podcast. No, I'm always up for talking about Diablo, so that sounds like a lot of fun. And maybe at some point we can talk about Dark Souls. It's unfortunate that we didn't get to it in this version of the podcast. <laughs> but that other conversation, Kat, as you know, it was it was phenomenal, and it's too bad that I don't want to ever get to hear it. We just get to tease everybody with how much better the other podcast was than this one. But I this love one's it. good, too. Yeah, you know, if you ever want to do a Dark Souls cast, I mean, bring me on. I can talk about those games all day, too. Those are kind of my new Diablo games. As, as, as mm. obsessed as I was with Diablo in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, I am as as much of a Souls fan now. Yeah. We uh, picked that as our number one game of the past 15 years on our uh, best game since 2000 list. So. Yes, I saw that. You chose wisely. Well, I had, I actually got the idea for that list from like this feeling that I was like, damn it, Dark Souls is the best game of the last generation, and I really want an excuse to say why. And then that's kind of what formed the germ of that idea and thankfully democracy was correct for once and <laughs> pushed dark souls to the very top um mostly because bob and i formed an impenetrable voting block that ensured that it would make that it would make it all the way to the top so do whatever i mean dark souls doesn't necessarily need help rising to the top but whatever you can do to give it a boost 
I, I support that. You know, and that's an interesting list, and I think a very prestigious honor for for any site, especially one as well recognized as USGamer.net, to bestow on it because you look at the last generation, and there were some amazing. Uh, new IPs that came out, and it's 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 one reason I'm still. I know this console generation is young, but I really it has yet to grab me, and I think it's because we have yet to see. Well, I mean, how many HD remasters and and new sequels to to the IPs from last generation do we need? We're not seeing nearly as much innovation as we did uh, this point in the in the lifespan of the 360 and the PS3. I would say. Well, not to get super in depth in this, but you just see AAA developers playing it really safe yes, because of how much money it costs to make these games and they're going to go with P- IPs that people recognize and just increasingly if you want a really fresh gaming experience you either look to Kickstarter where you get games like Divinity or you uh, or you look at the indie space, right? Um, if the 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 big AAA games have become kind of the summer blockbuster genre, which itself is very 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 safe, and it's going to go with comic book movies, and it's going to and Star Wars and YA novels like like Hunger Games, and so you're not going to get a a ton of originality there. It's comfort food. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, and you know, <laughs> having just said what I said, I probably should mention that I am ridiculously excited for the Resident Evil 2 remake, so I guess mm. I'm part of the problem. But, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Alright, David, thanks so much for dropping by. We're going to have you on again sometime soon. That sounds great. And for everybody else, of course, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. David, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me uh, at David L. Craddock, that's C-R-A-D-D-O-C-K, or at uh, www.davidlcraddock.com. And, of course, we've got a lot of great content over on usgamer.net, including that oral history of Diablo 2 that I was just referencing. You should totally go read it because it's awesome, and I feel very good about how that all came out. I second that. Well, thank you so much. And, of course, all of the reviews and opinions and all that stuff, the stuff that pays me money. <laughs> In any case, we will be back next week, I promise, and we're going to be talking about, uh, probably talking about Destiny the Taken King, but we will see. In any case, uh, for David and myself, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, I promise. And until then, happy adventuring. 